Grab your Bibles, and we're going through 1 Samuel. And find chapter 13. So last week we looked at um, the life, the beginning of King Saul's call into becoming the first king of Israel. And we're going to come now to chapter 13. Some years have gone by. Saul became king when he was 30 years old. So we're not sure how many years have gone by since he's been made king when we come to this battle scene in chapter 13. But Saul, King Saul is old enough that he's been married and has a son named Jonathan who is also old enough to be a soldier in the army. So I don't know how old you want to put King Saul at this point. 40? 45? I, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of tell. So I, the title of my sermon, ooh, this must be Jake's doing. Are you fearful or courageous? I like that. That's my sermon, okay? So are you a fearful believer or courageous believer? And this is kind of building off of last week about being filled with the Holy Spirit and then having this boldness and this courage when you're filled with the, with the Spirit. So we're going to look at a story of a battle with the Israelites against the Philistines. The Philistines are the, are the bad guys. And if you just look at it as a battle, it, it, it's like, okay, interesting story. But if you view it as that God has a message for the church inside of this battle, a spiritual message, then it really comes alive. First Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the stories of the Old Testament were given by God for us to see the spiritual truths. So let's start in here in chapter 13, starting in verse 3. Jonathan, that's the son of Saul, King Saul attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul, the dad, King Saul, had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become ob obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, King Saul had done this in the previous chapter, and 300,000 Israelites showed up. But as you're going to see, this time there's kind of a, a different response when King Saul calls for all the men to come to join into the, in the fight. Because we're going to see how big the Philistine army is. Verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel. Now in the NIV, depends on which version you have, it has 3,000 tanks. Okay? So it's got 3,000 chariots. Those are the tanks of the day. Some versions, we're not sure if it's 3,000 or some versions have 30,000 tanks. Okay? So you, you choose. So... 
Let's go with 3,000 tanks, 6,000 charioteers. So that's kind of why we're thinking uh, there's 3,000 tanks. And there, so there'd be one person to drive the chariot and then the other person that would, you know, chop off people's heads as the tank went on. Every, everyone, so you had two people in the chariot, one driving and one firing the gun. All right. And then there were soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So this is one huge army. They went and uh, went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets. They hid among the rocks. They hid in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews, verse 7, even crossed the Jordan to the land of Canada. Well, oh, maybe it says Gad and Gilead in your version. But that's the equivalent of deserting over to Canada. Because like they're looking, their army is much smaller. The Philistine army is huge. And so a lot of the army, they're just hiding everywhere. They're hiding in the cisterns, the wells, the rocks. And others said, I'm out of here. I'm going to Canada. Okay. Saul, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So they are scared to death for, for very good reasons. Okay. So let's jump down to verse 15 and let me show you why that army was shaking in fear. Verse 15, then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about what? 600. How many tanks does the other side have? Tanks, not soldiers. How many tanks do they have? 3,000. And there's 6,000 men, you know, with those tanks. To, that's not counting the soldiers that are as numerous as the sand on the sea. And Saul has 600 men. All right. So this is not, you can understand why they are very fearful and scared. Verse 16. It's, it gets worse. You think that's bad? It's, it's going to get worse for Israel. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying at Gibeah in Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. So I got a map here for you to kind of bring this all out. So Michmash, I love that town, that name, Michmash. So Michmash, you see, is right in the center of the map, that black circle where the three, the four blue lines are coming out from. That's Michmash. So that's where the enemy is located in Israel. Verse 17, raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shaal, that's to the north. Another toward Beth Havan, Horon, that's to the west. And the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zebulun, facing the wilderness to the east. So you see the blue lines. So the Philistines would send out their army in those directions too, and they had a purpose 
these raiding parties that would go out throughout Israel from the enemy. And the purpose was to find the military equipment of the Israelites and remove them. By the way, we do the same thing today. Countries will send out, like if we know countries might be trying to develop nuclear weapons or trying to develop some kind of military, we'll do preemptive strikes. We'll send out teams to stop them from getting their weapons. Well, that's what the Philistines were doing. Verse 19, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So the Philistines went out and they either killed or captured every blacksmith that could make swords, weapons of destruction. Verse 20, so bad. Israel's, verse 19, you could not find one blacksmith. Okay? So when, when the Hebrews, when Israel needed some help with their plows, so verse 20, so all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, their mattocks, their axes, their sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goats. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son, Jonathan, had them. So there's only two swords. This is pretty bad, <laughs> okay? You only got 600 men. They're all scared to death against a whole army. And they only have two swords because all the blacksmiths have been killed or captured by the Philistines in the whole land of Israel. So let me stop here and give you my spiritual take on this so far. Because nothing has kind of changed in life. Um, it's the blacksmiths that make swords. And it was the blacksmiths that sharpened the swords. And just as the Philistines moved in on God's people and said, we need to take the blacksmiths out so that the Israelites cannot have swords, so too the world is in a constant battle and a warfare today in 2023 to take out the spiritual blacksmiths of our country and the world who bring the word of God to you. You see, the word of God is, this is given to us by the Holy Spirit and um, part of the armor is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the world, in, especially in the USA, is constantly trying to remove the Bible. And in fact, 
the world is doing such a great job. I cannot tell you how many churches that supposedly are Bible-believing that tell their people in their church, leave your swords at home. You don't need them in our church. The few verses we'll teach you, we'll put up on a screen for you. It reminds me of the Israelites. It's like the Israelites could go to the enemy to get their axes and their plow points sharpened, but no swords were allowed. It's, it's the world says to the church, look, church, we don't mind if you get your axes sharpened and plow points. We don't mind if you preach psychology. We'll let you do that. We don't mind if you talk about pop positive thinking. We don't mind if you talk about other religions. We'll, we'll give you permission to, to, to do the latest fad and whatever, but we don't want swords. I mean, it's amazing to me that this is the book that God gave the church. And for churches to so downplay the sword, which is our main weapon, the main source of our information, and for churches to say, don't bring your Bibles, don't worry about it, don't. I'm like, what do you teach in Sunday school in your church when the people don't bring their Bibles? Oh, no, well, the lessons, we don't need the Bibles. The lessons we use, you know, they'll, they'll give you the few verses that you'll need or whatever. And I'm like, that's like the sickles and the axes. You know, we'll give you permission for that, but you're not going to learn the Word of God. So here's my question. Are there any blacksmiths left? Are there any blacksmiths left? Are there pastors who are forging? I got, I got a picture of a blacksmith here. Are, there, are, are pastors telling the people, forging the word of God, telling people, you need to have a Bible. You need to learn the Bible. You need to, how to use the Bible and, and get comfortable with the verses and, and how you can deal with people you witness to. The elders are supposed to be blacksmiths in a church. The elders are supposed to know how to handle the word. And they're supposed to be the teachers, the Sunday school teachers. You know, not just the lessons, but teaching the kids and the teens to have a love for the word and how to handle it and how to learn the books and, and the verses. Are there any blacksmiths left? In most churches, the Bible's gone. It's like, wow, just like the Philistines did back in those days. Get rid of the blacksmiths so they can't have swords. There's only two swords. Saul and Jonathan have those swords. So let's read on. Verse 23. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Let's go attack them. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. So that's, I got that picture here, okay? Here's Saul. He's with the 600 men. They're scared to death. They're hanging out under a tree. They're not doing very much. This King Saul is a perfect example of a typical maybe church that's afraid to attack afraid to be on the offensive and is just scared to death of the world moving in, coming at them. But then you got Jonathan, okay? And he, he got his young armor bearer. 
Verse 4. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bezez and the other Sanaa. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Gibba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over. Here, wait, let me, here's Jonathan. Okay, you're probably wondering how I got pictures of these guys. Okay, top secret. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. And that speaks of unbelievers. Unbelievers were uncircumcised in heart. We have hard hearts. They need to be circumcised so that people come to the Lord. Jonathan goes, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder a believer from saving souls, whether they have many or few, because of the power of God with that person. The spirit of the Lord. Verse 7. This is the armor bearer. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. Okay, so that's the armor bearer. He's encouraging. He's, I'm, I'm with you, heart and soul. Let's do it. So I got a picture here. Here's my, here's Jonathan with his armor bearer who's, I, I'm with you. Let's, let's do this together. Let's. We're going to be a team. We're going to be partners. I find it very interesting that Jesus sent out his disciples how? One by one? Two by two. I think about, oh, yeah. There's, there's something about having a partner. I thought about, I have an armor bearer. It's my wife. There's, not, there's nothing like having a biblical marriage. A biblical marriage. I know the world is redefining it. But in a biblical marriage, God said, you know, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to make a helpmate for him. My, my wife has been an armor bearer for me. A helpmate. I have no doubt that 98% of anything that I've accomplished has lays also at the feet of my armor bearer. Whether it was in ministry, whether it was raising our six kids, whether it was saving for retirement someday. I, you know, it's so much to have a godly armor bearer, to have a husband and wife that are one in heart and soul, stepping out for the Lord, that's very powerful. But ultimately, everyone, we all have an armor bearer, and it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that has the armor. The armor bearer carries the armor, okay? So the armor bearer is like carrying all the armor, and Jonathan says, I need a sword. The armor bearer says, here it is. Ta-da! I need a shield. Here, here it is. Okay. I need my gospel shoes. Here, put them on. Does everyone understand? The armor bearer carries the armor for the soldier. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's the one that supplies us with our spiritual armor. 
All right, so let's read on here. Oh, it's getting good. Okay. Verse 8, Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you. We will stay where we are and not go up to them. There's an implication we're going to be defeated. If they say, stay there, we're coming to you. We may as well surrender. We're done. But, verse 10. But if they say, come up to us. Here, I got it right here. Come to us. Because, come up to us. We'll climb up. Because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. You with me? So they're going to reveal themselves. And well, let's, I guess we should read. That's exactly what happens. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outposts. Look, said the Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shot, shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Everyone with me so far? So uh, listen, listen, this, the spiritual truth is. So Jonathan says, if they say stay there, We'll come to you. Jonathan says, we're done. Surrender, we lose. But if they say, come up to us, we're going to win. Folks, what did Jesus say with his great commission? Church, you should tell the world, tell the lost people to come to you. To come to your buildings so that you can tell them about Jesus. Or did Jesus say, go to them? Which one is it? Is it come world to us or we go out to them to take the battle to them? Which is it? It's take it to them. Okay. <laughs> See... The church makes a huge mistake when the church just stays put and you wait for the world to keep moving in on you. They will, and you're going to lose. We will lose. But if the church takes the offense and moves into Satan's territory, then God gets to really move in, in miraculous ways. There's a movie out called... Oh, it's with John MacArthur. Um, oh, boy. Someone's got a phone. Got to look it up. The, it's something church. What is it? Yeah, it's a new movie out. So John MacArthur and the, and the pastors of California. Calif during COVID, California was a lot tougher on the churches than Pennsylvania. So you remember when COVID hit, 
We were asked to shut down. But then four weeks later, we opened back up. And praise God, you, this service was the first service to, to come back. But in the state of Pennsylvania, the Supreme, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania backed up pastors so we weren't being arrested. And even though they didn't like it, we could meet. Out in California, however, was a different story. They told the pastors and the churches out there, do not reopen. You cannot meet. Well, many churches did reopen, and in California, they were arresting. You'll see this in the movie. They were arresting the preachers and sending them to jail. John MacArthur and the preachers got together, talked with their elders. The elders weren't totally on board, but eventually they all came on board, and they said, we're going to sue the government, that they are interfering. The government of California said that it was okay to protest in huge groups of thousands and thousands of people on the street, but they said no church can meet. And so they sued, and they won. They won. <laughs> And, and John MacArthur and these pastors said, if we just let the state, they were moving in on us. They were taking all our rights away from us. They were saying we could not worship God. So we went on the offense and we took it to them. And God moved and did miracles. It's, so you have to see this movie. It's, it's kind of scary because it goes over the history of the tyranny of governments and how they slowly take the rights away of the church. Of the church. The Essential Church. So it's a movie that's just out. It's not in this area yet, but it's coming. It's in West Virginia and, and moving this way. So, all right. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, let's climb up. Verse 19, or verse 13, excuse me. Jonathan climbed up. And how's he climbing up this this hillside. He's using his what? Hands and feet. In other words, and his armor bearer is right behind him. In other words, he is crawling up on his knees because he's going up a, the side of a mountain. And by the way, that's the only way that you fight is on your knees. It's on your knees. If you're going to bring the gospel to someone... By the way, I, I see this, this is, I'm just going to give you my opinion. If someone says, come to me, if someone opens up their door and says, yeah, I want to hear the gospel, you move in. You go to them. If someone says, I'm not interested, I'm, I'm not, then do not go. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. Jesus said, you go to a city and they're not interested and they don't invite you, you're done. Go, leave, go somewhere else. But if someone says, hey, come on in. I, I don't know this Jesus stuff, but I'm, I'm interested. Then you go on in. When, when I would, Robin and I, I did two church plans for myself, and then I did eight church plans for the district. I, I, we would do door-to-door -door in every church. I didn't have anyone. I'd go to door-to-door. -door, we're not interested. No, thank you. But then I'd hit a door and say, yeah, what is this? We're in. I went in. When they said, come on in. When they said, come on in. I was like, okay. There's an open door. Let's go. And the Apostle Paul was like, where should I go? Where should I go? He had a vision of, you know, the man in Macedonia. He said, come, come to us. Come to us. That's when the Apostle Paul knew that's, that's the open door. When you get invited, when people ask you, you, you got to show yourself. 
You got to show you. You know, it says they show themselves in the Philistines said they're crawling out of their holes. It was interesting. The pastors in California stood up and the world, California says, how dare these pastors come out of their holes? How dare these churches try to fight against the state? It was like, what? same thing. So, but you know, once you have an open door to witness to someone, you go on your knees praying. You come to the altar here, praying for the souls you're going to witness to. That relative, that child, that parent. You're, you're starting out on your feet, praying for that soul as you move up. Verse 13. So they're climbing up, using his hands and feet, his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. I thought that was funny. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So I thought this was funny. Like I'm picturing Jonathan's going up and he hits him with the sword in the leg. Because they're crawling up, right? Hits him with the sword in the leg, the guy falls over, then the armor bearer takes the shield and kapow! Kills him. That's what it says there. Okay? <laughs> so remember the armor bearer doesn't have a sword. There's only two swords, right? So Jonathan does the sword, and then the armor bearer, okay, I'll, you know, knock him out, or I'm killing him. This, this reminds me of preaching. So Joe Toomey uses the sword, I preach, but who's the armor bearer? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that follows behind the preaching of the word, and it's the Holy Spirit that actually... Rejuvenate, regenerates an individual that they once were lost and now they're saved, they were dead and now they're alive. It's, it's the armor bearer that actually does the final work. I'm just doing the sword of the spirit and, and convicting and the sword is sharper than any double-edged sword, the word of God, and, but it, it's the Holy Spirit behind that's you know, wrapping up the cases. And so... All right, so let's see, where are we at here? All right, you're ready for, oh, so let me stop here for a second and just ask this question. Where's the Jonathans of today? Where's the Jonathans of today? You see, the church is like Saul, just kind of comfortably hanging underneath the the tree, the building, very fearful of what's happening out there in the world, what's happening in the news, social media, the government, very fearful. The world looks huge. It looks scary. But the church is fearful underneath the church roof. What's going to happen? Well, where's the Jonathan's? Where's those men and women that are like, what do we got to lose? I know it seems hard. Let's step out. Let's, let's go by faith. I, I know I'm getting a little bit older, but I went to college. I went to seminary. I got my armor bearer. And they called me up. I'm from New Jersey. The last place I wanted to go was Pennsylvania. And they said, hey, Joe, Robin, will you go to 
West Newton in Pennsylvania. We don't have anything there, but there's a cute little town in the middle of nowhere. Why don't you go plant a church and we don't have anything for you. I'm like, we went, okay. <laughs> I'm like, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? We show up in this town. We're not from Pennsylvania. We don't know anyone. After We were there three weeks. I'm doing door to door. We're trying to start a church in a place I don't know, people I don't know with nothing. And, and we were on a pizza, sitting outside a pizza shop three weeks later, and we're looking at each other. What are we doing here? Why, how do we get ourselves in this situation where they drop us into this crazy town in the middle of Pennsylvania, Western PA? But God moved. God moved. I go to door and we find believers and people get saved. And I'm like, but then, you know, as you get older. So I was thinking to myself now, I was like, okay, first of all, let me point out something to you. You know, we have a Jonathan living up in the parsonage. Do you know that? His name is Jonathan. It's Pastor Jeff's son who's preparing for ministry. And his name's Jonathan. And we have a Thomas who's up in the Parsons. He lives up in the Parsons and he's preparing to be the youth pastor of this church. And I'm like, now I view myself, I'm a little bit older. I'd still want to be a Jonathan, believe me. But I also am kind of like a, um, a Caleb. Caleb was 80 years old and Caleb said to Joshua, give me that, the toughest group of people, the Amalekites on the hills, up in the mountains. He says, that's what I want. I'm going to take them. But Caleb puts out the challenge to the young men. Hey, whoever helps me, whoever takes that, you get to marry my daughter. And that's when Orphanel comes up. Yeah, yeah, you know. So my job as I've become a little bit older is like generals, generals in the Pentagon. They probably were great warriors in the battle, I would bet back in Vietnam, whatever. But now they're older, they're generals. What's their job? Their job is to encourage. Where's the, nun? Where's the new recruits? Where's those young men and women that are ready to go into battle and fight for the USA? That's my job a little bit. It's like, where's the Jonathans of today? Go for it. We went for it. It was great. You see God move. Go for it. Step out. You don't have many Jonathans, but if you are one of those, go for it. Verse 15, I call this revival. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. That's called revival, okay? So God is moving. Yeah. They, they, they lost only 20 men, but all those soldiers, they hear what's happening and great panic strikes them. God shakes. This is called revival. God's moving. It's, it always starts with one person and their arm. It always starts with prayer. So Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Um, come down to verse 20. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. See, the church is either in the defense mode. Right now, the world, do you understand the world has so many different ideas and philosophies and religions 
In the USA, there are so many, there are atheists, there are secularists, there are lovers of money, there are witches, there are, you know, you name it. The world has, is, they're all different. They all have their swords. But right now, the world all has, they're, they're united together because they have one common enemy. Who's that? The church. The church. So they're all united together because of the church. And the church is hiding. The church is in defensive mode as the world is beating in with bit by bit, taking away the rights of the Christians, getting Christians to hide in the rocks and in the cisterns and to run off to Canada and, and quaking in fear as the, as the world is coming in on us. But revival, when the church takes the battle out, when the Jonathans of the church move out, then God brings us this where the world starts chopping each other up. And they start, if, if they, get, they get focused on each other, they will destroy each other because they really all disagree. They all have their own ideas. So, revival's happening. All right, let's go on. Verse 21. So I got a picture here. Do you know there are two types of backsliding Christians? Verse 21. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. The Hebrews that were with the Philistines had gone over to them. When they see the revival, when they see God moving, they now leave the Philistines and they join back with the army they should have been with. Does everyone see that? And then we also read verse 22, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on. There's two types of backslidden Christians. So the church is being beat up. So what happens with a lot of Christians that get scared is, and they, they come up with all kinds of excuses why they're going back into the world, back to the world. They may say, oh, the church hurt my feelings. Someone hurt me at church. I'm like, come on. Someone probably hurt you at your job, but you didn't quit your job. Someone probably hurt you in your family, one of your kids, but you didn't throw your kid out. Someone probably, you know, <laughs> hurt you in the USA, but you didn't leave the country. But now someone hurts you in the church and the church is full of sinners where we're all growing and you're gonna leave the church and you're gonna go back into the world. You're gonna go back to the way you, now get me, you're saved, you're a Christian, you're born again, you belong to God, but no one knows it because you're back, you're hanging out with the world and you're acting like the world. Oh yeah, I get it. You belong to Jesus, secret, but you're hanging out. The world has no idea you're a Christian. They think you're one of them. The way you talk, the way you act, they're like, yeah, he's a Philistine. He's, he's one of us. Okay, but when revival happens, when God starts moving again, the Christians that are in the world, by the way, just to give you a statistic, for every 
Christian that goes to church. There's a Christian that's back in the world and there's a Christian that's hiding in the mountains. So in other words, when we would plant churches and we would go door to door, actually we weren't necessarily looking for lost people. We were looking for those two types of Christians that were not going to church anymore, but were Christians. But some of them were back in the world and some of them were hiding and challenging them to join the battle of we're gonna plant a new church and take this town for Jesus. So there are Christians, you know you have revival when the Christians that you didn't even, you don't even know they're Christians. They suddenly like, oh yeah, I'm born again. I got saved, I know I haven't been in church in 10 years, but I'm born again, I wanna join back in. The other Christians are the ones that are hiding. Do you know there's tons of Christians that hide They are the Christians, so they don't go to church. They're not back in the world. They're hiding on their houses and in their farms and in Montana or wherever. They're hiding and they're fearful because they view that the world's coming in and it's the Antichrist is gonna come, the mark of the beast, and they're trying to prepare and they're and they're worried. And you know what's so sad about this is if that's the posture you take. If you take that posture of just hiding and being defensive, don't worry, the world will find you. It's better to join the church and get take the battle to them as opposed to you just, oh, the government, I, 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 I can't go to church, I wanna hide. But when revival happens, even those Christians come out of hiding and say, I wanna join. Take the battle out. All right, no, I gotta close. Oh yeah, I have this. I don't know if you saw this. This is a soldier that defected from the US Army and went over to North Korea. Are you aware of this story that just happened? And our government, I guess, is trying to figure out how to get him back. And you know what my first response is? Get him back. Why? No way. Every US soldier that has defected over to the enemy usually pretty soon regrets that decision. So I kind of have a bad, I've had a bad attitude. I'm like, why would our government be trying to get him back? Don't do that. (laughs) He, you know, made his bed, is that how you say it? But then I thought to myself, as I was working on this sermon, that there are Christians that are in the world that have defected. They're born again Christians, but they defected to the other side. But Jesus goes after them, revival. They come back out from hanging out with the Philistines and go, oh no, I'm a Hebrew. You know, so I'm like, okay, I gotta be more gracious. So three questions. Question number one, do you have a sword? Is there anyone here this morning? So I brought, I've decided people donate Bibles to our library. We got so many Bibles, so many swords. I've got all kinds of brand new swords up here. So I'm just gonna ask all of you this question. Do you have a sword? 
This is a blacksmith church. So see me afterwards. You don't actually have to see me. You can just come up here. I got about 10 of them. And grab for yourself a sword. Okay? So if you don't have a sword, get one. Number two, are you a blacksmith? Are you, are you good at sharpening swords and teaching the word of God? I think, man, I would just like, I think there's like 500 people, 600 people that come to this church. But there's only like, I don't know, 40 adults that are in the blacksmith course where the teachers are helping them to sharpen their swords and learn how to teach them. I'm like, where's the other blacksmiths? Where's the other teachers that can reach the other 450 people in our church that aren't learning how to use the swords? Where's the blacksmiths? Where's our blacksmiths that love teaching the word and training people how to use the word to win the loss? So where, where are the blacksmiths? And number three, are you fearful or courageous? Let's look to the Lord. Father, um, I thank you for this wonderful group of believers here. And may we have the spirit of, the, of boldness and courage like Jonathan had to, and, and we do in a lot of ways, to take the gospel out to the lost and dying. We don't fight with physical swords, Lord. We fight with spiritual swords, not to kill people, but to bring life to them in Jesus Christ. They're actually walking zombies already. And they need the life that comes with Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. So, Lord, may you bring divine appointments that we come out of our holes, that the world sees that we're Christians, and that some of the people in the world will say, come up to me. Come to me and share Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that you would arm all of us with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that you would give us the privilege of sharing Jesus. And then the armor bearer, the Holy Spirit, will cross them over from death to life. Bless us as we close, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.